0: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We've got lots of weightlifting and powerlifting certifications coming up in the second half of 2019, so check those out. This podcast can also be found on our website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And if any of the platforms that you listen to offer the functionality of a rating, go ahead and take three seconds and just give us that little five-star bam. Just three seconds right now. Do it. Bet you won't. Bet you won't. Thank you. You did it. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, and I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a Physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company. He is a competitive powerlifter himself, so he walks the walk. What's up, Jared?
1: Not much, man. I'm just feeling a nice little boost from that five-star rating that you just coerced out of someone. We got at least one out of our six. feel not a bad percentage. (laughs) And we have
0: John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, which is also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, which is an online coaching company for strength athletes, online coaching platform. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. What's up, John?
2: Nothing much, I'm excited to be here today. It's been a good day all from work, so I'm well rested.
0: Hey, there we go. And we're super excited to welcome to the show competitive powerlifter, powerlifting coach, and founder of Reactive Training Systems, Mike Tushier. And when I say competitive powerlifter, we're talking gold medalists at IPF Worlds and multiple time national champ, currently coaches many of the strongest powerlifters in the world both male and female, and he also happens to be, in our biased opinion, one of the great thinkers in the sport. So, Mike, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Good to talk with you guys.
0: So, there's a lot of things that we want to get into here about coaching and programming and the athlete's response to training in general, but before we do that, Mike, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led you up to where you are now, both as an athlete and a coach?
3: Sure. Uh, My, I got into powerlifting like a lot of people do from playing football. You start lifting weights. And um, I remember uh, like, it's like the early days of the internet or something, right? So I have the internet at my school and I'm like type, I remember typing in powerlifting.com just because that was a word that I had heard at some point, and there was a website and it talked about this sport, and I was like, "Wow, you can do less than five reps on an exercise. You can do three <laughs> reps. Like that's a thing, you know." And uh, just really uh, introduced me to the sport. And I tell people that I kind of became at that point instead of like a football player that powerlifts in the off season, I was a powerlifter that played football in the off season. Like my my heart was really in lifting weights, you know, and I was good at it. Uh, when I went to uh, I went to the Air Force Academy, they had a powerlifting team. Um, long story short, I ended up kind of being the de facto coach of that team my second year, and so I've got these guys who are on the team with me that are looking to me to to coach them, you know, and so I had to learn by doing. Um, You know, I had quite a bit of experience. I got started at a pretty young age. uh, So I was able to kind of muddle through that. But that's kind of when I got started coaching. I wrote down a lot of the stuff that I was learning through that process. And I originally wanted to just get it published in like Powerlifting USA as like this article series or something. But it kind of grew to the point where I thought, hey, maybe I'll self-publish this as a book. And that became the Reactive Training Manual. And then somebody emailed me and was like, hey, will you coach me online? And I was like, that's a thing? You can do that? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and uh, that was kind of the beginning of the online coaching thing that started And uh, for me, it started in about 2008 uh, and took off from there. Uh, since then, you know, um, I was a high-level competitor and I uh, got plugged in with a lot of other high-level competitors and... I uh, kind of got in in the beginning, uh, so got a lot of experience and um, so on, things, things grew and evolved. So I suppose that's kind of the quick version.
0: The RTS manual was the first time, or was the first exposure that I got to you, and I learned a ton just from that. And then I met you in, I think it was 2013, 2014 maybe, at a juggernaut seminar here in Orange County. And you spoke on auto-regulation and you could just tell that the way that you thought about this sport was not different in the sense of you were doing anything drastically but you you were a critical thinker and um you know you were look, really looking to kind of bring science into training and and for the athlete to kind of take take charge of what they're doing and and i really really appreciated that and i've i've followed you closely ever since and your training philosophy has seemed to evolve over time as you've learned more, at least that's the sense that I get. And with your philosophy now, can you talk about emerging strategies and that concept from from your coaching philosophy? Why, what holes you were seeing in the training process that led you to the way that you coach now?
3: Yeah. uh, I would say before 2014 or 15, somewhere in there. I mean, I was programming training pretty much like everyone else. You know, we follow, uh, there's several different periodization models, but they're all kind of the same thing. You know, like we have linear periodization and people want to argue over linear versus block. And well, like, block is kind of linear that's compressed down into a shorter time scale and you know okay cool you know and anyway if we go back further than that uh there was a a guy who used to write uh, a blog a fitness related blog Uh, his name was matt perryman and uh he wrote a book uh at one point called squat every day and this was kind of when powerlifting was going through its uh Bulgarian style training infatuation, <clears throat> like tends to happen every decade or so. Um, anyway, he, he always struck me as a really clear thinker, uh, really had um, good insights on these things. Anyway, he sent me a copy of his book. And uh, one of the things that he talked about in, in his book was problems with a top-down planning model. Uh, Which is what basically every periodization model is. You know, you start, we're going to start with the quadrennial and break it up into annual plans and, you know, all the way down to the training session. So, this training session is a tiny little brick that fits in this giant house that you're building toward the peak of your athletic potential. And we're going to plan all this out in advance, basically. You know, well, there's a lot of problems with that. And I think a lot of us, basically, everybody who, rights training for, for athletes sees the problems with this, you know, that these things are not predictable. And, uh, there's even to the point of, of predicting more than a few weeks in advance. Like you don't, um, you don't incorporate emerging information. You don't incorporate, uh, all this additional data that's coming back into you through these feedback processes. And, You've got cognitive biases working against you and so on. So anyway, there's these problems with a a top-down approach. And our approach tends to be we'll plan for shorter and shorter periods. Like I've heard coaches say, well, I only plan three weeks at a time. I only plan four weeks at a time. And I think that mitigates a lot of the problems, but probably doesn't solve them completely. Uh, Anyway, Matt in his book is talking about these problems with a top-down planning Approach. And I thought, you know, that's really smart. Well, what would a bottom up approach look like? And I had no idea. And I kind of got stuck there for a, a couple of years um, until at one point I was listening to an interview with Derek Evely, who uh, worked uh, as a throws coach under Dr. Anatoly Bondarchuk, And uh, again, I'll kind of uh, cut through some of the story here, but uh, uh, I'm listening to him talk about how they prepared shot putters, hammer throwers. And I'm thinking that's a bottom-up approach. That's what it would look like. And uh, I began the process of trying to translate that into powerlifting. And basically what you get from there is this concept of emerging strategies, which um, just kind of a a rough outline. Um, You design one microcycle, one single unit of training. Um, now, in traditional powerlifting parlance, uh, a microcycle is going to be one training week, and that's a great place to start. Uh, it's important to point out it doesn't have to be. Uh, for example, uh, in the hammer throw, uh, those guys have one training session, and that single training session constitutes the entire microcycle. Now, it's not one session per week, they're doing that session every day. You know, but at that point, they're running a training microcycle every day. You know, uh, the way that microcycles being defined here is kind of one unit of training that repeats. So that's fine. Start with a training week if that's easier to wrap your mind around, you know. So it's one week of training. You do that and then you come back the next week and you do it again. Same exercises, same sets, same reps, same RPE. So the load on the bar can adjust, uh, based on your performance, which hopefully you're getting stronger. So the load goes up a little bit. Um, but you want the, the dose of training to be the same. And what you're doing is just looking to see what happens, you know, and <clears throat> you, you notice that athletes tend to have usually one of three types of responses. Sometimes they just get better you know, from week one to week two, they get a little better and then so on. Uh, Sometimes there's a a dip in performance in week two uh, and then a subsequent rise uh, for for a while. Uh, Then the third type is kind of this stagnant, um, like no real up or down movement uh, for a few weeks. And then sometimes like a small dip and a big rise, sometimes no small dip, uh, but a big rise. So you get one of these three response types. The performance at some point goes up. And then at some point it stops going up. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for this peak condition. And what you want to, well, first, once you hit that peak condition, that's when it's time to change something, you know, so you're repeating this microcycle over and over and you're monitoring the results. And as long as you're getting better, uh, then you keep going. Then when you stop getting better, you change something. Um, you go kind of the way that we do it most of the time, like 99% of the time is we go into a, what we call a pivot block. Think of it like a deload for right now. Um, it's roughly one half uh, or excuse me, one third, the length of the development block. Uh, so if, if you spent six weeks in the development block, then you'll have a, a two week long pivot. Um, it's not like some, some people think of, of, they hear the word "deload," and they think, "Well, I'll screw around the gym for thirty minutes and then I'll go home. It's not exactly that. you know it's still training. It's just not hardcore, single minded, get stronger training. you know it's it's more diverse, it's more uh, generalized, you know um, anyway, so you go through this pivot and then you go into another development cycle um, that's different from the first one, okay. Simple enough, but what this does, it allows you to start to see what is producing results for you, because each development cycle that you do, you would do a block review. You would take take note of what you did and what the results were. So you do a few development cycles, and then you start to look at these block reviews and you go, "Hey, all my best training blocks are done when I'm, you know, at uh, eighty to eighty-five percent intensity, or they all include pin squats or whatever, you know, there could be lots of different things. And then you start to piece together this picture of what does the athlete respond best to? Then when you come close to a competition, you start to pull those block reviews and replay your greatest hits, replay the things that you have the most justification for as far as producing results for that athlete. And then, uh, uh, that's kind of where the the name Emerging Strategies comes from, because the long term plan emerges from the short term plan. There's not really this top down imposition of of what the long term is going to look like. We're just going to let it grow. <clears throat> so, I'm going to be selfish in the questions that I
0: ask because I <laughs> I'm going to ask questions that I've had for you had for you for a while. And if if first of all, if people want to learn more about Emerging Strategies and Reactive Training Systems. You've got one of the best YouTube channels, in my opinion, and you you talk about these oh, things thanks. at length, and you and you dive into specific topics of of uh, exercise selection and peaking and what is a pivot block pivot block and you've got an entire one of your from one of your seminars you've got an entire lecture on YouTube. So Mike dives into this stuff for free, and it's all over the internet. So I want to kind of just dive into some of these topics a little bit that you're discussing, you gave us a nice little framework there. You talked about three different types of athletes. On average, you see kind of three responses. That type one athlete is more of what we would consider ideal, maybe, where they just kind of, they get better and better and better until they don't anymore. And that's when it's time to switch it up. It's more of like that logical progression of what you would think where that type two or three, maybe not so much, um, where the type two is maybe an initial dip and then they react more like a type one, it sounds like. And the type three is a real head scratcher where they don't seem to be responding well to the training or just kind of not poorly, but just not progressing necessarily. Those are the athletes that I have a hard time with because you don't know, should I stick with this? Like, let's just from an emerging strategy standpoint, how long am I sticking with this micro cycle until it's, Maybe it's just time to switch it up. Maybe this particular set of exercises is not the set of exercises for them versus, you know what? It's been seven weeks and they haven't really responded. Let's, let's give it another two or three weeks and see how they're doing. See if we hit that peak for whatever reason. Do you have a heuristic on that? Or is it, is it more of just, you know, intuition?
3: Well, fortunately the type three is, is, probably the rarest response type. Uh, It's also important to note that it's not like you're locked into one of these. Like if you have a type one response, then you're always type one, Um, you know, it'll change from block to block. Um, So once you get a sense of an athlete's time to peak, it gets to be a lot easier. You know, if like, take me, for example, I'm, I'm six exposures, roughly six weeks Uh, as my time to peak. Um, And I'm in a block right now where I'm in week three and not a lot's happening, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it can be a little bit demoralizing, I guess, where you kind of go, man, I don't know, maybe I should pull the plug on things. Maybe this just isn't working. Right. But it's also only week three. And I would say if nothing's happening by week four, uh, maybe, you know, but, like for me right now, hey, some things are starting to move on some of the assistance exercises. Maybe that's a leading indicator and just hang in there a little bit longer, you know. Um, I think that's a good way to go. Now, if it's like your first block and you really just don't know, then it's all exploration anyway. You know, you you may say, eh, it's just not worth it to continue. Let's pull a plug on this and try something else. You know, that, that's totally fine to do. It's fine to have a few false starts i guess while you're trying to figure some of this stuff out um like peaking at at different times is is one that tends to come up a lot um in general i find that lifters squat bench and deadlift peak in pretty much the same number of exposures one of them might be off by one exposure or something like that but they're grouped pretty tightly you know sometimes I'll hear about somebody whose bench is half the number of exposures as the other two or something like that. And what I find is usually when that's happening, it's something is off in the program. They just didn't respond well to this or or something like that. You know, if you get the variables dialed in well, I think that the lifts generally peak together. And I would say that, you know, it takes a little while to figure that stuff out and just like with the, the response type thing. It can take a little while to, to sort it out, but that's all right. You know, it, it, there's, there's kind of this, uh, known versus unknown problem that comes up quite a bit. Um, there's a lot of things where it's like, well, you just don't know, you have to figure it out. It's going to take a while to figure it out, you know, and that kind of feels bad, right? Cause we're sitting here as coaches and we go, ah, man, I don't want to you know, take three months and figure it out. But that was going to be true anyway. It's just that with a top-down approach, we're pretending that we know the answer now. We just, that's just not true though.
2: I think something to touch on with that is through a long enough time scale, you as an athlete or even as a coach dealing with athletes, will see somebody go from a type one to a type two to a type three. Mm -hmm. The knowns and unknowns change and shift. And even you know, going back a little bit, talking about going back to your greatest hits, your greatest hits might be within a time frame that's actually acceptable, and the stuff from two years ago might not still be true. So yeah. those things constantly change, and we, I think a lot of people get locked into this you know mindset of six weeks until you know a bigger bench or twelve weeks until whatever. Um, you really have to look at it at much longer time scales, and and really understand that. Nine months from now, you're going to be a different athlete and maybe in a different place. Yeah. The one absolutely. thing that I've wanted to ask is when you have athletes that go through those dips, what do you do mindset wise with those individuals? Because that can be really frustrating um, to, to see a lot of momentum or see some stagnation and see a dip in, in progress. What do you do at that point? Because we see okay. it in rehab as well, because it's not a linear process stole my question, John. Damn it.
0: That's the only, that's all we're going to hear from Jared
3: then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, uh, for me, I mean, of course it's situationally dependent and you, you kind of develop that relationship with an athlete a lot. Right. But I know one thing that's helped me a lot are these block reviews. Um, part of the block review process is the charting of, of progress, you know, and, um, I remember I had a lifter who would improve for two weeks and then regress for a week and then improve for two and then regress for one. So they weren't like real peaks. It's not like that single regression was a real true peak condition. It was just like a bad workout every third workout, you know, but it was fairly predictable. Um, And so I remember she was, what, I guess, two or three weeks out from a major competition has the bad workout. And it's like, oh, this is so frustrating. You know, I don't even want to do the competition anymore. Like you get these, these comments and, and like, I've been there. Right. But it was so great. I was able to pull out these block reviews and say, look, this happens every time you have two good ones and a bad one. This was just the bad one. You know, we're going to have two good ones and it'll be right on the, right on the meat. This is it. It's like that regression is an indicator now that we're on pe- we're on pace, you know, and uh, that was really really useful in terms of being able to
1: to say okay actually I'm fine and this is going to be fine. That that's a really interesting uh, example because it sounds like you were able to to use that and not spin it but, but but use it as evidence to support the idea that this is just how things go and we're we're fine. Right. Do you do you ever find that it it goes the other way where it almost becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Say if your athlete recognizes that there's this pattern that exists and then, you know, it's that third workout or that third microcycle, and they're just not pushing themselves as hard. And it just perpetuates that way when there could be some progress that could potentially be made, but we just don't know. Sure.
3: Um, I haven't noticed that in particular, but I mean, I'm sure that that's uh, that's plausible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I've noticed that's kind of in that direction, uh, we we have people track like their feelings of soreness, feelings of mm-hmm. fatigue, motivation to train, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's useful, especially in a remote environment. You know, you would normally assess these things, you know, just through normal human interaction. So we have a process around it. But uh, um, sure. I noticed that like through this process, that would freak a lot of people out. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they would see those numbers in the red and they, that just, they just mentally couldn't handle that. So for those Mm -hmm. people, it's like, maybe this isn't a useful tool. And we'll just kind of get away from that because it kind of becomes that psychologically damaging kind of thing.
1: Right. Uh, I actually want to say that I've been using the RTS uh, training log for Probably the better part of a year coming up on a year now. So thank you very much for making that a free thing. Um, I first found out about that when uh, you were on the Strength Athlete podcast and talking yeah. about merging strategies again. And I think it's been really um, useful for myself and my coach just to to be able to have this this amalgamation of data um, to use and try to make you know attempt to try to make sense of of certain things and and having those standardized questions allow um, me just to, I guess, be honest with myself as I'm heading into training sessions, still recognizing that how I feel heading into a session isn't always indicative of what the session might in fact be. And that works both ways. But it also allows my coach uh, a chance to review that. And if he's seeing some data points that are sort of trending for a period of time towards being in the red or just not being as ideal as we want, we're able to have a conversation. And we yeah. spoke with uh, Kevin Can not long ago. Um, and, and he was saying that he he uses some some very simple questions just to try to uh, keep tabs on things. And if he sees a lot of low ratings, he just tries to have a conversation with the athlete and see what's going on, you know, and see if there are factors that can be controlled. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, well, actually, I told Kevin this uh, and I'll tell you, too, but between you and, and, and he, I think you're probably two of the most influential coaches that have um, sort of been shaping my my thought as a coach and clinician as of late. Um, and a few of my own lifters in the last, say, month, you know, we've been, we've been I've been talking to them more about how um, you know, how we feel. Isn't always you know a great indicator again of performance. We want to pay attention to it because as humans, we're not just a collection of tissues. Like we're all that plus our expectations right. and all of that stuff. Um, one lifter a couple weeks ago said he had a he felt like shit all week, and he set like two or three PRs, and that's been continuing in the last couple of, of weeks. You know, and I've sort of tried to not not to ex, not to make him expect. This to stop at some point. I mean, it will just, it'd be great if we could ride this out forever, but just to say that it hey, might be a dip at some point, And that's okay. That's part of the process. But also to let them know that this is a great example of what can happen. You might not feel great, but just go in, and we'll make smart decisions based on what's there, and we might be pleasantly surprised.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, right on. I mean, the, the, the uh, attempt to predict performance before you go into the gym. I mean, I haven't found anything that is anything like a reliable indicator. You know, I mean, it's just at this point, like it's not even worth trying. I don't think, you know, yeah, that's, that's honestly why I have a hard time,
0: even with the wellness questionnaires. Yeah. yeah. I find that my response is the same. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's start warming up and see how you feel because of, <laughs> of, of Jared's exact thing coming into the gym, you feel like crap and it ends up being a great day. And it goes the other way too. You come to the gym and everything's spot on. You're like, I'm going to crush it today. And as soon as you start working up in your warm ups, it's like, whoa, just ain't happening. You know, um, I had, that's a conversation I had with another clinician. And he actually brought up a good point is maybe the questionnaire is just something to keep the athlete cognizant of their training process as well. You know, if we ask, how's your sleep? rate your sleep, rate your nutrition, rate, rate how you feel. And if they're rating how they feel a certain way and they're also rating their sleep and their nutrition a certain way, maybe I don't have to say anything. Maybe I can just be like, you know what I'm going to (laughs) say. So I think there's some merit in that as well. Mike, the, the peak, the time to peak is a question I have for you. Do you find that that is consistent, relatively consistent on average for a particular lifter from microcycle to microcycle kind of across their their training career even though microcycles could be drastically different in regards to exercise variation
3: yeah yeah so the uh time to peak does seem to be pretty stable although we were just having a conversation about this uh with some of the other coaches and I, we have noticed that over a long period of time like multiple years there does seem to be a shortening that happens. Um, n- usually not a lot, you know, usually a week, you know, or or, or one exposure, uh, sometimes too, you know, when we've had, uh, outliers from that, you know, but it does, maybe there might be an exposure uh, or a shortening that happens on a long enough timeline, but in general, yeah, it's pretty stable. Um, as long as the difficulty of the program is pretty consistent. You know, like if you really crank up the difficulty of your program, uh, then you have recovery issues, so you peak early. You know, but that's not even really a peak in terms of – I wouldn't think of that as like peak condition. That's – your fatigue is just outpacing your ability to recover at that point. Is that – does that makes sense. Oh, it but, it does. It's it's
0: just that it's such a odd thing that averages out to be that way. Where it doesn't, it's pretty much <laughs> the same. Have you? Isn't that? It's one
3: of those crazy things. Well, I mean, yeah, it does. It seems weird, right? Like, you mean if I'm squatting high intensity, squatting low intensity, doing different exercises, high reps, low reps, since all about six exposures. Yeah. So if, if I think of it as adaptation to a stimulus that you give your, your body stimulus a, and there's an adaptation process and my body completes that process in roughly not completes the process, but kind of starts to desensitize to that stimulus is I think maybe a more accurate way to think of it. Um, Like spend some time in a loud factory, and you start to tune out the background noise like that kind of desensitization is what I'm talking about. Um, I think you kind of stop acclimating to or stop adapting to the training on a a certain timeline, you know, and that varies from person to person. Um, When I think of it like that, it doesn't seem so weird, you know, like if you change the pitch of the noise, uh, change the volume of the noise, yeah, it's a different sound, but you still adapt to it and you still desensitize to it and it's, it takes probably roughly the same amount of time. Um, you think intensity is the key factor there? I think it has something to do with it, right? So uh, this is something that I haven't quite figured out. I'd be curious to know what you guys think, actually. Um, so we know that... So what counts as a, as an exposure, Right. Um, there's this, this notion of counting the number of exposures to your time to peak. Um, if I train the competition squat, that's one thing. And then if I do lunges, that's very clearly not a squat. You know, it's the same muscles, but very different, you know, but what about a safety bar squat, the same kind of pattern? Is that the same exposure? What about the difference between a competition bench and a touch and go bench? Like, those are really close together. Does your body really respond completely different, like as though those are completely different movements? I, I don't know. Uh, from my conversations with with Derek and, by extension, Bondarchuk, um he's telling me that they think that there's something to do with the intensity and that the magic number seems to be something around 10% that if movements are roughly 10 percent different then they seem to register as different exposures now it's important to note that there's not actually an exposure counter anywhere in your body that's like oh that's one squat that's two squats you know um but it's it's a heuristic you know does this roughly seem like it's uh matching up or not and i can kind of see that Uh, I can, I know from, for myself, when I'm doing things like touch and go bench, it's usually for a lot higher reps. So there's a pretty significant intensity difference. Um, but I would think, you know, if you were to do, you know, a heavy single comp bench and then a heavy single touch and go bench that eh, those might actually be really close to the same thing, you know, um, definitely within 10% of each other.
2: Well, you've talked before about attractors and fluctuators. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of the attractors within those movements are going to be very similar. That's a now, good point. You might have, like, let, let's use the touch and go bench and a competition bench. The attractors of elbow flare and range of motion and all those things are going to be so similar that now really velocity becomes probably the biggest fluctuator there. Um, same thing with like a safety bar squat. We still have to go to depth and we can change foot width. We can change specialty bar type. We can change bar placement. Um, but you still have those same attractors. I think that's kind of where that 10% comes from is, you know, we still have a standard, especially in powerlifting. We still have such a standard to meet. um, and and there's a lot of other things you can change, but does your body really know the difference between a high bar wide stand squat versus a a low bar comp squat or the touch and go bench in a comp grip and an actual paused bench in a comp grip. Um, and I think that's where like my head's been trying to wrap the same thing for a while now too, you know, how much variation do you incorporate when you, you talk about a lunge? A lunge is not a squat. I still need to keep squats, obviously, but how far off from competition can we go and still get stimulus to bring it back around for that peak and still be in the right spot?
3: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't actually tied it into the uh, the Bosch stuff, um, well, tractors a- and fluctuators. Yeah,
0: I'm thinking about the actually just stress in general. Where it's, we're looking for, where you're like a a safety bar squat and a low bar back squat are similar enough to be, does the body actually tell the difference? And that's when we, okay, we're getting into the attractor states of movement patterns. But if we also just, just think of the stress of the tissue, I mean, what are, what's, what's actually eliciting some type of physiological adaptation? Is it mechanical stress? Is it, is it percentage of motor neuron pool excitability? You know, if we're talking about some type of, like, hypertrophy effect, we're trying to get as much motor neuron activity as we can, you know, activate the whole pool. Um, Whereas maybe intensity, maybe mechanical stress is, is, and that's where intensity lives, you know, just put as much mechanical stress on the tissues. And perhaps the reason that a split squat isn't quite as good on average is maybe it just doesn't have as much mechanical tension, It's the pattern, even even with the split squat, the pattern between that and a squat on that one side are relatively the same. Your knee is bending and your hip is bending. I don't know if the body's thinking this is a split squat versus a back squat from from like a tissue standpoint.
3: Well, forgive me for taking this back into the the kind of a fuzzy area, Uh, but if you tie in the psychological aspects of it you know the the notions of intention then i think i mean go back to that being in that loud factory right and you're in there for a while and you start you tune out the background noise but if somebody comes up to you and says hey do you hear that then you listen now you hear it again you know that maybe the fact that you walk up to it and you say that is a safety squat bar psychologically now your approach to it the way it feels is different uh the way that it you know like your your environment is different you know that's a uh bosch talks about like the different kinds of variation i'm i'm sure i'm messing that term up but he's got different different levels and environment would be one of them uh that tends to be pretty not utilized uh i think for for a lot of gym rats you know but like you go to a different gym, a different setting, you train on a different rack than you normally train at, you know, it, it feels a little bit different. You know, you're, you're, the quality of attention that you're paying to that session is just a little bit different. And maybe that's, maybe that's enough uh, in terms of stimulating an adaptation. Well, that's kind of
0: one of the, the premise of emerging strategies is very, is you take advantage of variation and you don't, worry too much about specificity, which actually segues into a conversation I wanted to have with you anyway, which is transference versus specificity. Sure. But if you, if you respect that you need somewhat of a similar stimulus to progress a particular stimulus, but then be okay changing the stimulus without necessarily overthinking whether this is the right exercise f- for the particular goal, but it's, it's close enough... And the big the the big key factor is that it's different enough. you've changed something um, now, maybe in the scenario that you just discussed, maybe you can just do the same exercise, but if you went to a different gym every day that you did the same exercise, maybe that would be enough variation <laughs> in, in the training you know yeah. um, but because people usually go to the same gym and they they use a similar rack and they're around similar people, then we switch up the exercises and that's, that's the, the varied stimulus or something like that. Um, but part of where, part of the thing with, I think people pushing away from emergent strategies are saying, oh, that's different, is, is the variation of it and saying, well, we need to taper into specificity as we get closer to competition because specificity is king and in order to get good at the thing, we have to do more of the thing. So if it's powerlifting, we have to do heavier one rep max squats. We've got to get used to that. And can you talk a little bit about what you think about that and tie that into the idea of transference versus specificity?
3: Sure. I think that if that is true, uh, if, uh doing heavier squats or more specific training anything like that makes you better at the at at your chosen task then yeah absolutely do that but i have found that that is not true for everybody uh it's true most of the time for most people and i think that's why it's the the standard way of progressing and powerlifting because it is true most of if it was wrong most of the time we would have figured that out by now um but if you're one of the people that it's wrong for then that's important that's important to you you know um my classic example of this is i had a guy uh, i worked with him for years before emerging strategies was the thing um and we train in the typical way um he would always it sounds obvious when I frame it this way, but I don't know any other way to frame it. Um, but he, as we would approach a competition, he would always kind of get beat up, and the results would always fizzle as we would get close to the competition. It was really frustrating. Uh, and you know, you think, well, what do, what do you do about that? You know, well, you try to tweak things here and there, but you have this paradigm that you're not even really aware of that. Well, as I approach the competition, of course the intensity has to go up. Like we're not even questioning that aspect of programming; it's it's assumed to be true. Uh, but when we started doing the emerging strategy stuff, the the obvious observation at that point is that it's it's directly tied to whenever we do these high intensity blocks. If we stick to like middle intensity zones, he just gets stronger. He doesn't get beat up. He just gets stronger, and so we said, well, if training at high intensity makes you worse, then why would we do that right before the competition? You know, um, and when you frame it like that, it's like, well, of course, you know, why would you? So we sent him into a competition uh, having done nothing heavier than uh, a set of six at a nine RPE, which is, you know, 83 or so percent. He did nothing heavier than 83 percent, that whole block. Uh Attempt selection was a little bit nerve-wracking because he hadn't touched any of those heavier weights. Um, We're basing this purely on estimates, which we had a lot of data, so we had reasonable faith in our estimates, but it's still nerve-wracking. But he came away with some big, big PRs from that. And then from there, we said, well, how can we improve on this idea a little bit? What if we just had one or two sessions? Of a, of a high intensity. Is that enough for us to benchmark where we're at without you getting beat up? And for him, it was, you know, so you just kinda, you you use this as a tool to navigate the path and solve problems that you see come up, you know? For him, that was really important, you know? The the specificity wasn't working out, so we opted for whatever was working.
2: And I, I still think over the long enough timeline, even if you are one of those individuals where a more linear approach works a lot, there will be a time where that slows down and you have to start thinking about things like this, where you you have to incorporate a little bit of change and a little yeah. bit of variation to stimulate more growth. And then you can go right back to what you were doing before. The problem is- our
3: adages, right? Like we yeah. say, we even say like nothing works forever, but- Everything works we don't for apply a time. that to like our most deeply held, you know, uh, dogma about what training is. You know, um, well, I've got to, I've got to train four days a week because that's how a powerlifter trains. Like, we don't apply that to like there's there's, and like I see it even in things that I do. Like I write write these different strategies, and I look at them. If I look at them all as a whole, like I see how they're all related to each other, and I think there's something that's going to stagnate in that you've got to get, and, and you see it with, uh, with athletes that, you know, athletes working with coach a, uh, quits and goes with coach B and they get a, a, a boost in their result. Another athletes working with coach B quits and goes with coach A gets a boost in the result. So it's not that one coach is better than the other. Maybe it's the change itself. The fact that it's a different system, uh, the fact that, it's getting, breaking those molds of, of all these things that, oh, that's just how we do it. You know,
0: mentally so, too. You guys, yeah, you yeah. got somebody new telling you something that you're going to listen
3: a little bit more reinvigorated a little bit. Well, I'm starting to think that that's it. You know, that I'm starting to think that it's, it, there's maybe a lot more to this attentional quality, you know, like think of it this way. Like, if you squat on Monday and every week you come in, you squat on Monday and okay, we're going to change the exercises. We're going to change the protocols and all this, but every, every Monday is squat day. You know, what if, what if it's not, what if you come in and deadlift on Monday? Well, that's different, you know, or, or what if, you know, your, your training is always percentage based. Well, now it's RPE based. What if it's or vice versa? It doesn't even matter. But the fact that there's some, big change to to the foundation of the workout it's not it's not the load on the body the stress on the body is different but you have to pay attention differently because things are different now you know the the rules that you're using to make these choices are different and now you have it's not autopilot you have to directly pay attention to it and i think maybe that's a thing that is stimulating in itself you know i've been having a hard
0: time making a distinction i think we <laughs> we dichotomize um like motor skill acquisition and also just yeah. physiological adaptation of strength we almost kind of separate those things but now more and more i'm starting to think of strength as a skill itself and the way that you're describing it is like it's not just and you said it you just said it it's not just about the mechanical stress it's also it's also about your attention and if we're automatic with things and so my understanding of automaticity is when when you become fully automated you're no longer learning you're just bringing what you have to the table and you're working with that now maybe you're world class and what you're bringing on an automatic scale is top-notch and it's going to crush everybody else's but if you then want to if you want to pull back and hone in on a particular skill or some or whatever or a strategy you have to you have to back up a little bit and put more deliberate practice into it and then that becomes automatic and that levels maybe levels up your automatic your automaticity or whatever that attractor yeah. is and so maybe yeah. what you just described is kind of that in strength training where you you pull back enough to where now you have to pay attention be a little bit more deliberate with what you're doing in your practice and then that you build 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 that starts to be a little bit automatic and maybe in this case automatic means leveling off or hitting that peak, pull back again, have to pay attention because it's new. Boom,
3: boom, boom. I don't know if, I don't know. I think you see, I think you see this with, uh, with lifters and and technique, you know, uh, there's kind of this perception among novice and intermediate lifters that at some point you achieve this technical perfection or, and that it's automatic. You don't even think about it anymore, but the people that I know who've been doing this the longest still tinker with their technique. I oh, wonder if I turn my foot a little bit more this way or that way. Oh No, that felt worse. So I'll go back to the other way of doing it. Like they still are paying attention to that stuff and they're still tinkering with it. It's never complete, you know, and, and I think that process of always revisiting, always paying attention. Because like you said, John, like the stuff that you learned two years ago may not apply anymore. It used to hurt when I do this. Maybe it doesn't hurt anymore, you know, or, or you know, any, there's so many different things that can happen and you've got to just revisit the territory, you know, the territory is changing. And if you're only looking at your map, uh, you've got to refresh the map, you know,
0: we see that with weightlifting a lot, as far as tinkering with their movement patterns, we'll have lifters say, you know, I can't, my front squat and my back squat stance are different. My snatch and my clean and jerk start positions are different, um, and it's almost perceived as a problem. And you know, we'll watch. Obviously, we'll watch the movements. If we if we deem it that it's sustainable and something that they can they can work with, we're like, cool. Just kind of let your body, let your body run with it, and we'll maybe throw that expectation in that it just shifted to a more narrow stance for this block. Don't be surprised if it reverts back to a wider stance at some point for whatever reason, and that's just it's just doing what it does. I think it's the drastic changes over time that like if you come into a new coach and they're like completely change your technique in a very drastic way, maybe that's not necessarily what we're looking for, but it's like your body starts to just find solutions and self-organize itself over time.
2: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the changing coach is just like a environmental constraint. I mean, just like we're talking about a change in a gym or uh, changing a particular type of movement. You, you see that and it forces the brain to create another solution, Um, and, and it's just adding different constraints through time. Awesome.
0: Thanks again, Mike. And thanks Jared and John for being on and we'll see you guys next time or something like that.
2: Yeah. It was great, man. Yeah. Good to talk with you guys.